Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 353 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Wes Loker. He's written video games for developers such as Fable Apps, Pocket Gems Games, Nanobit Software based on the Play and Pulse Tense games. And his comic books have been published in the U.S., U.K., and Canada by Alterna Comics, Titan Comics, Marcosia Enterprises, Arcana Studios, and many others. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Braving Britannia, Life, Love, and Adventure in Ultima Online, which collects fond reminiscences from dozens of people who played or worked on Ultima Online, the game that popularized the idea of a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And now here's our interview with Wes Loker. All right, so we're here with Wes Loker. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so how did you first get the idea to write a book about Ultima Online? Oh, man. Well, as someone who who spent years and years of his life playing Ultima Online from about uh, 1998 till 2004, uh, it was it was one of those games that just, it kind of stuck with me. You know, I was constantly, in all my online gaming, I was, I was always looking to reachieve that same high that Ultima Online offered as far as its emergent gameplay and kind of the, the interactions that you could have with the community. Um, and I looked for stuff for many years just to see if anybody had, had written about the game in any type of extended format. Um, I was always curious about you know, the people I would meet along the way, the, the random people that you would run into during the game. I always thought, you know, what, what do these people do when, you know, after they leave this adventure that we've shared together and they disappear? Well, you know, what do they do? And, who are they kind of behind the screen and, and what do they really like about this game that has affected me so much? Um, so throughout the years, you know, having stopped playing in, in 2004 or so, I mean, that's more than 10 years that have passed at that point. This game is still in my head. So I'm searching Amazon and I'm not seeing anything. I'm searching websites and I'm not seeing anything. So, um, as a writer, what I tend to do is if, if there's not something that I, if I can't find something that I want to read, I tend to say, okay, well, I'll just write it myself. So. Um, in around September of, of 2017, I kind of put the feelers out there through some, uh, UO communities they had gathered on Facebook and a couple other websites and said, you know, here's my idea. You know, I, I would love to collect a bunch of stories from people who have played this game, find out what the game has meant to you, find out how it has affected you, inspired you. Um, and then I'm going to collect it in a book and put it out. And, you know, I, you never know if people are going to A, take you seriously or B, even be interested in sharing their story. But I had such a, just a, a wonderful, uh, feedback to it that I started, I set up like a document to collect stories just through email. Um, and, and I got some really great ones. So I just started reaching out to folks that, that shared interesting anecdotes and said, you know, I'd love to interview you, kind of get the full story and, and spent roughly eight months putting it together. And the, the finished product was finally published in uh, July of 2018. So who were some of those first couple of people that you started hearing back from? Oh, it was, it was everybody. It was just my, my inbox was flooded. I think in the first 48 hours, I had almost 200 responses. So immediately I had a lot of stuff I had to sift through. And some of the stories were gold. Uh, some of the stories were, you know, not so interesting, interesting to the person. And I don't want to devalue their experiences, but I, you know, as a storyteller, you kind of know what's going to, to reflect on an audience. So, uh, one of the first people that I remember hearing back from that, that had me, uh, really excited was, um, the lady, her name is Karen, who played the character Kazola on the Great Lakes server. And, and of course, I knew her from running Kazola's Tavern, which was a very famous player-run establishment. 
Um, so seeing that name on the screen, I thought, well, this is great if she wants to participate, but I should also reach out to other people that I may remember from um, that, that ran player-run establishments, whether that was taverns or gathering places or, or guilds or, or anything I could think of. So that actually ended up inspiring just an entire chapter in the book. Right. So this Casola's Tavern you talk about in the book was, it was actually sort of endorsed by the creators of the game as a, a good player-run place for people to hang out and get drinks and things within the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they saw kind of the potential of if you can build a community around a specific place, um, it, it can it can be a gathering spot away from the town's official cities where players can find each other, uh, build relationships, go on adventures. And, and so they wanted to encourage that. So um, in, in the process of that, they, they did what was called blessing the tavern, giving them kind of uh, decorations, giving them unique features that couldn't be added to player run houses outside of that. So it was a way for other establishments across the other service to then aspire to that, to, to try to become that hub for, for their specific communities, which, which is fantastic. I think that that's part of what uh, really helped the game, um, you know, build a, a player base that, um, was very cohesive. Was that a place that you had spent time at yourself as a player, or were you on a different server or something? Yeah, I was actually on a completely different server. I played. Uh, I started on Lake Superior, and then uh, I moved to Sonoma after a couple years into the game. So I, I went there one time. I just created a throwaway character on that server just because I'd been reading about it on the Stratix website, which was a, a big hub for the community. And I just wanted to see it for myself. And so I, I went one night and just kind of enjoyed myself with this this brand new character that had no skills whatsoever and and kind of saw what was possible and then was was fortunate enough to find a similar community on Sonoma and so I just kind of focused my efforts on on becoming part of that community as well so were any of these people that you were hearing from people that you had interacted with before on in the game no um they were all complete strangers to me prior to this i i consider them all to be friends now but um, you know, just by being a part of the community, you, you kind of notice those players that rise to, you know, for lack of a better term, celebrity status. So there were a lot of names that I remembered. Um, for instance, there's another player that I interviewed. Um, his name is Luke Tomasello and his character was Adam Ant, who was a very kind of famous assassin. And he chronicled his adventures on a website where he had a whole backstory that explained why he killed people, the reason for that. Um, if, if they didn't follow the rules that he had set for this specific dungeon in the game, he would hunt them and murder them. But if you followed the rules, he would let you hunt in peace. So I remembered that website. I, I looked at it, you know, every couple of days, once a week. And then, uh, w when I saw, I can't remember if he submitted something or if somebody put me in touch with him. Um, but that was, that was somebody that I was like, wow, this person's going to have a great story because they've been so imaginative in the way that they've played the game. I guarantee that this is going to be interesting. And he did not let me down. Yeah, he was the protector of the liches, right? He was. And and like I said, he had a whole backstory, this very deep uh, role-playing philosophy behind what he did with why he did what he did. So the fact to me that somebody would, would actually take time outside of the game to come up with this whole mythology for themselves was absolutely fascinating. And, and those were the types of stories that I knew would translate well to this sort of book. Now, you mentioned that you were a writer. Had you written other books before or other books like this? Um, this is the first nonfiction book I'd ever written. I'm, I'm actually a professional writer by trade. Um, I, I work mainly in comic books and video games, but, uh, when something piques my interest, I, I kind of pursue it just on the side or, or at night in between other projects. And, and this was just one of those things that got in my head. And, you know, I, I really wanted to read this book. So hence the reason that I, I spent the time to, to do it myself. Was it difficult to write a book? No, not surprisingly not. Um, I do have a, a journalism background. I spent four years working as a journalist professionally. 
So to me, it was kind of the same process of, of finding your sources, interviewing them, making sure that there's a, a narrative that's kind of coming out that's going to be interesting to readers, and then adapting those interviews into a written format that will will tell the story from beginning to end in chronological order and, and have that, uh, you know, emotional through line and that, that theme within it. So uh, it should have been harder than it was, but I found that the project came together really easily. And then how were you interviewing these people? Was it over the phone or over email? Or uh, I was mainly talking to them over over email. Um, what I found early on is I, I jumped on a phone call with somebody that, that was interesting. They had a good story. Um, but when I put them on the spot and was trying to record the conversation to be transcribed later, what I found is that they were having a really difficult time remembering dates or they had you know documents on their computer that they had saved from their experience that they wanted to consult. And so it just, it didn't really come out very well that way. So what I started doing after that was, um, I, I used a, a Google Doc system and just sent them essentially questionnaires. And the initial questionnaires had maybe 20, 30 questions, just general, you know, what server did you play? What was your character's name? What was your character's skill set? What were some of the first memories that you had? And, and they would go through and they would fill them out. I would go back through, read them, um, add in additional questions, and we would just essentially toss this document back and forth whether that was three times or 10 times, just to kind of get the full story. So there was a lot of follow-up questions, a lot of emails. Uh, I had a really good system that I set up that I, I kept me organized, and and that just seemed the best way to do it. And thankfully, because uh, these people were living in this online world, they were so used to communicating you know, through text and, and actually typing that everybody was very eloquent and everybody you know really got their stories across. See, what you should have done is created a character in Ultima Online and then logged into the game and interviewed them <laughs> at a tavern or something. That would I, be I, really comfortable. I should have. And, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, I still haven't actually played the game since 2004. I, I know that there's a, a free version out there now that the, the publisher is or the developer is toying with. And, and a part of me just feels like if I go back, I, I run the risk of being disappointed in what I find. So I have just kind of decided to to keep my memories as they are and and maybe you know I'll give it a shot in a in a couple months or maybe a couple of years down the line but for now I feel very content with with what I have in my brain. Mm. Were there any uh, interviews that you did that were difficult to get that you had to have connections or anything? Uh sure, you know any any of the developers that I interviewed in the the second to last chapter of the book I ended up speaking with uh, like Ray Coster who was kind of the creative lead from the Second Age expansion. Uh, up through essentially right before Renaissance. Um, you know, he was a little bit hard to get a hold of. Um, but once we connected, we, you know, we had some great conversations back and forth. And he just has a ton of information that he has saved and archived, um, on his own website. And just, he sent me lots of documents. He sent me a copy of, of a new book that he was working on at the time called Postmortems, which is out now, uh, that just talks about his experience working on Ultima Online in depth. So things like that were priceless. But, but what I found is that, um, you know, everybody was more than happy to talk about their experiences. It was just a matter of, of setting aside the time to, to answer the questions and really allow themselves to kind of revisit that mind space and, 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 you know, tell the stories from the trenches that we may have never heard before. Are there other books like this that are mostly accounts from different players about one game? Cause I'm not too familiar with, I can't think of too many examples of that. Uh, you know, I don't know of any. Um, one interesting thing that did happen though is that within a couple weeks of releasing uh, my book, uh, somebody released a book about Star Wars Galaxies that's very similar that I guess we were kind of writing at the same time. So I, as far as I know, that's the only other book uh, that covers a specific game and kind of talks about the, 
the oral history of the game. Yeah, I mean, so do you think of yourself as sort of a folklorist of video games? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I is never, if you told me 10 years ago that I would write this book, I would have called you crazy. Um, but now since, since having produced it, you know, I've, I've started working on a sequel to it, which is, is, is slow going, but, um, is, is keeping me entertained. And then I have also kind of looked around it at other games that I could potentially write about in a similar vein. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe in five years, I'll, I'll, Put that title on my business card. <laughs> so there's a lot more, I guess, to say about Ultima Online. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, the game has been running for 20 years. Um, there's so many stories to be told. There's, you know, there have been hundreds of thousands of players throughout its history. Um, and people are still passionate about it. You know, if you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook, you know, you see that people have very much an emotional connection to the game. Um, you, they are able to kind of place their their experiences in life alongside of it. People have, you know, gotten married because of this game. People have had children because of this game. It's helped them through hard times. It's, it was the, um, the game they played throughout their, their high school or their college. So, um, as, as long as those people still have those connections and those stories, then, then there's definitely more to be mined there for sure. What was the process? Once you had the manuscript completed, what was the process like of making it available to the public? Sure. So I, I talked to a couple of um, book publishers. I, I was trying to go kind of the traditional route to to see if somebody could publish it, maybe, you know, get it into stores, that type of thing. There are a few um, specialty publishers that, that work specifically with video games. And um, it wasn't that nobody wanted it. Um, some people wanted it to be changed into something that I felt that it, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the best way to present it. Um, there were, you know, and there were other people that had their own ideas. For instance, I submitted it to one publisher who, who wrote back and said, have you thought about writing a book about Minecraft instead? And I said, you know, no, I, I haven't. And, and in which case they weren't, they were not interested. So it became clear to me. I, I have a very strong kind of do it yourself epic. I come from, you know, a music background. I come from a self publishing background with comic books and, and I knew that I had the tools and I had, Throughout the eight months that I was working on this, I was building a community through through Facebook, through an email list. I was keeping people updated on on kind of who I was talking to and how those interviews were going and, and what I was planning to do next and giving them snippets and stuff. So, you know, I knew that I had an audience in place. So all I really had to do was was get the book out there. So in probably June of 2018, I stepped back and said, you know, why am I submitting this to people and, and being rejected or or why are they wanting to you know, force me to turn it into something that it's not. So I'll just release the book myself. And then I, you know, additionally, I'll, I'll get to keep all the money from it. I won't have to spread that around. So, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm glad that I did it that way. I wouldn't change a thing about the way that I've released it. It's, it's still selling well seven months later. Um, so I think I, I think I pursued the right path for sure. In the acknowledgments, you thank your wife for lending you her artistic talents and business smarts. Could you talk about that? Sure. So, um, my, my wife is, she is a, uh, She's a very talented woman. She has worked as a, as a web designer, a graphic designer. Um, she's done uh, scripting for video games. She There's not much that she can't just pick up very quickly. So when I was going to do the, the cover art for the book, um, I wasn't really sure what to do, to be honest with you. I, I didn't I didn't know how to represent such a, a, a game, you know, such a, a game with such a wide berth in, in a singular image. Um, so I, I just ended up talking to her about it one night and we were kind of spitballing back and forth. And, um, eventually we kind of came up with a concept and, and she was the one that put together the, the completed cover art as it appears on the book. 
Right. And the cover art is really good. I mean, my girlfriend actually commented while I was reading it. She says, oh, that's a that's a really nice cover. Yeah. And, and I said, like, yeah, this is I think this is a self-published book. But, you know, you couldn't tell from looking at it. It's a really nice looking package. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I definitely I have a, a lot of experience in that arena. And, I, you know, I wanted it to to look good. I didn't want it to look like what people think of when they think self-published books. So uh, a lot of sleepless nights went into kind of the design and the packaging and, and even on the interiors, making sure that it looked professional inside as well as outside. So I really appreciate you saying that. And then when you say your wife contributed her business smarts, what sort of business considerations were there in in publishing this book? Sure. So she she has been uh, self-employed for for many years, just doing doing those various things that I described earlier. So um, I you know had a long conversation with her about whether to kind of go the traditional publishing route or the self-publishing route. And, and she just kind of, um, you know, helped me weigh the pros and cons and, and helped me identify some of the, the long-term effects of doing this and, and basically helped me land on that thing about, you know, the money goes into my pocket instead of somebody else's. So, uh, you know, she's, she's a great sounding board and, you know, it's great to have somebody like that on your team. So um, whether that was just, you know, helping me build the confidence to, to do it the way I wanted to do it or, or helping me see things, about the self-publishing process that I, I maybe didn't want to acknowledge at first. Um, you know, she was invaluable. I couldn't have done it without her for sure. So, I mean, if there's anyone listening to this who's thinking, oh, I might want to do something similar for my favorite game, is there any advice you would have or any any lessons that you learned in this yeah, process? Totally. Um, as, as humans, we always look for stories um, that are human in nature. You know, we, we want to connect with the person. We want to understand what they were thinking, what they were feeling, what they were going through. Um, you know, so I would recommend that you, you know, build relationships with, with the interview subjects. You know, don't just get in and ask them 20 questions and get out. Um, understand kind of, you know, how, you know, where they came from, where they, where they grew up, what their life was like, um, outside of the game and, and what, yeah, what struggles they were having. You know, all of that emotion informs their their life story and then goes into the game so um you treat them as people you know build a relationship with them and you'll get the best result right i'll say i mean i read a, a another book sort of in this vein i won't say what it was but i i felt that it was it kind of lost my interest because it was so in universe and it mm -hmm. didn't draw connections between the game and the people's lives outside the game and i think that that's what was really interesting to me about this book is that you 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 draw those connections very cool. Yeah, that was definitely important to me. You know, I, my biggest fear was, um, was throwing a lot of jargon at people because every game has its associated acronyms and, and slang that people will use. And, you know, I really went out of my way to A, you know, use as little of that as possible and B, when it was necessary, just to make sure that it was defined. So somebody, you know, it was really important to me that somebody who had never played Ultima Online could still enjoy this book if they had an interest in, in video game history or if they wanted to learn something from the developers that I had spoken with, or if they wanted to try to figure out, you know, how to make uh, an MMO, you know, that, that keeps an audience for a long period of time, I wanted to make sure that those lessons could be found within there. So that was definitely something that was was conscious on my end. Have you heard from people who have read the book who had never played Ultima or Ultima Online? Uh, a few of them, yeah. I actually, uh, somebody sent me a link to a, a review that they did on their website, and uh, they had never played Ultima or the online version or the offline games, and and they loved it. And so that was that was nice to hear that they were able to still connect with it. Um, they they just had a, a big interest in MMOs in general. Um, they'd played other ones, and so they could definitely relate to some of those emotions and feelings that come along with you know living in a virtual world for an extended period of time. 
Now, so these stories that you were getting, were they the kinds of things, did you have, were they the kinds of things you'd heard about in your years playing the game or, or were there things that were coming out of left field where you're like, I never even imagined this was going on in oh, Ultimate yeah. Online? Totally. A, a little bit of both. Um, for instance, one of the most famous stories from, from Ultima Online is shortly before the end of the, the beta test where, um, Richard Garriott as Lord British and Star Long as Lord Blackthorn were, were addressing a crowd of people and, and kind of doing a final stress test on the servers. And in the process of, of trying to have an event, um, somebody in the audience actually cast a spell that, that killed the king of, of Britannia. So, uh, not something that they expected, and and so people always talk about the the famed death of Lord British. Um, so that was an event that I feel that I had to cover, and I actually tracked down somebody who was there at the time that had a, a unique take on the event that um, hadn't really been explored before. And I won't go too much deeper into detail because it, it will give away some of the the fun aspects of the story. So I wanted to include like a momentous event like that, but then at the same time, people had other stories that you know I had no idea that they existed. For instance, I I talked to one woman who. Um, you know, her whole goal in the game was to create a, a Carmelite convent. And the reason for that is because she had tried to join a convent in her real life, but, um, she was refused entrance to it because she was already a mother and only women who haven't uh, already born children, um, are the only ones who are allowed to be in those. So that was her way of kind of achieving a life goal, uh, in a virtual setting. So, you know, everybody joined the game with their, their different versions of success, their different hopes, their different goals and dreams. So I just wanted to explore those and say, you know, you know, what were you setting out to do? What was, since there is no end to the game, what was the end game for you? And, and that's where some of the most interesting things came from. I mean, you mentioned that a number of people got married after meeting through the game and a lot of them actually had weddings in the game with, you know, with their characters. And mm -hmm. one of the thing, one of the ones that really stuck out to me is that there was a couple and they had met hunting witches in some extraordinarily, extraordinarily dangerous part of a dungeon. And they wanted their wedding ceremony within the game performed in that same place. <laughs> but then that's, right. you know, then the guests are all getting attacked by monsters and they have to have bodyguards or I don't even know. At least it was memorable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that was the great thing about the game is that anything that you, you know, I always... I always tell people, you know, it's a, it's a game where you could do anything, you know, quote unquote, but uh, you were a lot of times only limited by your imagination. So any type of, of get together you wanted to have with your, your virtual friends, you know, could be in a safe place. It could be in, in the most dangerous place in the game. And that's part of what made it so exciting. One of these taverns you mentioned, they had like Friday night mud wrestling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why not? Right. Like, what does that actually look like in the game? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I assume that it's two people stripping naked and, and, and smacking each other in a, uh, area that it looks muddy. <laughs> I didn't ask them to elaborate, but I, I, that's just me using my imagination. So how, I mean, there, is there mud in the game that you could, how would you make an area look muddy? I think that you probably just look for an area of, of tile that looks like there's mud, perhaps. And uh, probably just have your characters stand in it. I, if there was more to that, it, it wasn't elaborated on. But uh, perhaps that's a, that's a story for the follow-up. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I hope there's a whole chapter on that. <laughs> I'm gonna gonna make a note right now. <laughs> well, because I thought it was funny because you know that a lot of people it sounds like got really creative because the the graphics are fairly primitive and you could combine. I don't even know what it, you know. You could make like a, a bouquet or something out of like a bandage, a boot, and like whatever. Sure. You, yeah, perhaps they had they had something more to it. So um, that that's an interesting question. And and again, you know, people got really imaginative with the things they were created. 
Um, one of the other stories I spoke with was a lady who, um, she officiated weddings across many servers and she said that she was constantly having to create new items that people wanted. Um, I, I remember a specific example was that the, the people who were getting married, they wanted her to build them a koi pond. So she had to actually figure out how to stack certain items to imitate water, how to look like fish, how to have rocks around the water. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's more patience than I had when I played for sure. But, uh, I did see a lot of cool stuff as I wandered the wilderness. So I'm, I'm glad that there were people out there that were able to kind of channel their creativity into that. Another thing I just found amazing was you talk about this thing called the Shadow Clan, where these people were role-playing orcs, even though orcs was not a supported feature within the game. Yeah, again, that you know, that just goes to, you know, how you can use your imagination. People decided that, you know, because you could get clothing from the orcs by killing them that would make you look like an orc, they decided, well, let's just create our own language and actually, you know, invade a... Um, a a fort that's already in the game and, and kind of lay claim to it. And so they came up with a whole language, a whole ranking system. They, they coordinated adventures. They, they only spoke, you know, in their language. So you had to actually learn it before you could join the clan. Um, you know, that, that's fascinating to me. That was a, a group that I really wanted to talk to. I, I'd never, um, played with them, but when I played on the server of Siege Perilous temporarily, I, I did encounter them. And, and it was always just so much fun. The fact that people would take the time to really get that into character and, and really that into their gaming experience was, was awesome. And that's something that, you know, you've seen in every game since. You know, people have done that in, in EverQuest. People have done that in World of Warcraft. So, um, you know, just from an imagination standpoint, I, I, I commend the people that had that type of dedication. And I mean, it sounds like, I mean, one of these women mentioned spending a month learning this language. So it was not a trivial matter. (laughs) Right. She, she mentioned that, uh, while riding to work in the mornings with her husband, they would, they would quiz each other back and forth (laughs) and attempt to prepare for their, their entrance interview into the clan. So super cool. So, I mean, I never, I was a huge, huge fan of the single player Ultimate games. I never actually played Ultima online because it came out, I was in college by the time it came out and I just did not have time to, to play a game like that at that time. But I'm, sure. I'm fascinated by it and I love just hearing people's stories about it. Um, but the, the overwhelming impression I get just from hearing people talk about it is that player misbehavior was an enormous <laughs> feature of the game. Is that. Yeah, pretty that's, accurate that's, impression. That's definitely accurate. I mean, wherever you have um, lawless areas within a game, you're going to have players who take advantage of that. I mean, I write about my own experience with the game. Uh, I talk about the the first thirty minutes of of me logging in for the very first time, which ended in my death at the hands of another player, and and that was just commonplace. You know, you learn to kind of fear the people as much as the the computer controlled monsters that inhabited the world, and. And there were people that were, you know, their only goal was to to ruin your day. And there's people who would, you know, hunt you for sport. But then once they killed you, they would resurrect you. They'd give you your items back. Just they just liked the thrill of the chase. So, um, you know, you kind of learned where to go to avoid those people where they hung out. Um, and that kind of affected your where you might go to to adventure with your friends. Um, ultimately, in in the year 2000, um, the Electronic Arts and Origin, they were, they published a, an expansion called Ultima Online Renaissance, which essentially doubled the world, giving players a place that was PvP friendly and then a place where that, uh, you, you couldn't actually PvP, um, unless you consented to it. And that kind of split the game. That's, that's when I started to lose interest, to be honest with you. Um, but I, you know, I think it helped because they were seeing player retention issues where people were just dying all the time and, and quitting. 
So, you know, if I'm a game developer and, and I see that people are, are not staying in the game and they're not paying their subscription fee, I'm going to think about what I can do to make their play experience better as well. So I don't fault them for it, but it definitely, um, it definitely changed the dynamic and it, and it really kind of split the world into two, uh, both literally and figuratively. And, and I can see where it hurt the community as well. And PvP, just in case anyone doesn't know, is players killing other players. For sure. Player versus player combat. Look at me dropping acronyms here. <laughs> um, but you think that splitting the worlds like that increased the the number of players? Oh, sure. Uh, folks were able to go out and adventure, and, and they were they didn't have to worry about losing their items unless they potentially died to a, uh, a computer-controlled character. They didn't have to worry about somebody, you know, turning around and stabbing them in the back while they were in the middle of a dangerous dungeon. Um, unfortunately, though, what came with that is that if you if you look at a player-run establishment like Kazola's Tavern, um, they were located in the old land, which was called Faluka. And um, what happened was is that as as most of the population went to the new lands that were known as Trammel, um, you know, this this tavern that she had spent so many years, you know, building up and, and working hard to build a community around, it became a ghost town. And that was pretty... Uh, common across all of the servers i mean but reading your accounts uh or you know people's accounts of their experiences it seems like a, a wildly disproportionate number of the interesting stories involve pvp sure sure i i definitely tended to focus a bit more on on some of the the older stories um it for one that was when i was active so i was able to to talk about that for instance i didn't have a lot of experience with well, many of the expansions that came out after I quit the game. Um, you know, I had a cursory knowledge of, of what they were, but I didn't experience them. And therefore, it was easier for me to, to write in depth, um, and knowledgeably about the things that I knew. Um, and, and a lot of people consider the, you know, nineties, the late nineties of Ultima Online to be kind of the heyday. And, and that's when a lot of the fun was had. And, and I don't know, honestly, that if I were to talk to somebody who started playing and say, you know, 2010, I don't know that the stories that they have would be potentially as interesting. You know, for, feel free to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody is listening that has an amazing story. But um, you know, there's that element of, of risk versus reward that made the game so special. And, and that's something that definitely kind of went out the window in, in later years. Well, there's this line. I can't remember if it's in The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, but the one of the characters says basically that um, you know, the the most pleasant experiences make the least interesting stories and the most unpleasant experiences make the most interesting stories. Sure. And um and that's the whole, I guess, you know, conflict is the whole basis of drama and everything. But um I I, I and I, as I said, I don't have any personal experience with Ultima Online, but it's almost impossible for me to imagine that the 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 Wild West players killing players was not just more interesting from a sure. you know uh, to remember and from a sociological perspective and everything than a more curated um, theme park kind of MMO experience. Exactly. I mean, you know, there were many times where if, if your character wasn't, um, you know, if they didn't have magical abilities to be able to teleport back and forth around the, the game world, I mean, you had to you either get somebody to take you through a, a gate or you had to walk. And if you walked from one city to another, you were potentially exposed from anywhere from five minutes to, you know, half an hour real time. And you kind of had to worry about what was out there in the wilderness, who was patrolling those roads, you know, what were people's intentions. If somebody came up to you on the, the road and, you know, s said hello, did, you know, were 20 of their friends about to jump out and take you down or did they genuinely want to be your friend? So uh, it was an interesting time. You know, the, the Internet was still pretty new at that point and we were all kind of figuring things out together and. 
um, you know, you, you got to, to see that there are a lot of different people out there and, and not all of their intentions were bad, but not all of their intentions are good either. Well, right. When you say that the internet was new, one thing that really struck me was when it says that at the time they were developing Ultima Online, that Electronic Arts didn't have a website. Yeah. That's how, <laughs> that's how new all this stuff was. Absolutely. At that time. Yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, Raph Coster talking about how, you know, part of his duties with the game was to literally build a, a website for the game and, and Electronic Arts didn't understand why they needed one. <laughs> But I mean, so but getting back to the the you know difficult things being more interesting. I mean, I as I said, all my experiences were with the single player Ultima games, but they were. I mean, they could be incredibly frustrating. I mean, particularly by today's standards, um, you know, you would have to actually map the dungeons on a piece of paper if you wanted to find your way through them, and you'd have to write down anything, anything anybody said that was a hint. You would have to write it down on a piece of paper and. A lot of times people would make really elaborate adventure journals, you know, physical objects, and they would sure. illustrate them and stuff because you were going to spend months and months and months because the games were so difficult. And I would never put up with any of that now, <laughs> but it made it feel like an adventure. It made it feel real and memorable and in a way that, you know, uh, no game that you just sort of breeze through, you know, in 20 hours with your auto map and your auto yeah. lo uh, quest log and everything uh, really does. Yeah, it's it's hard to to ask for that from players nowadays, and especially as our our attention spans get shorter and shorter. To you know, to find that immersiveness in a game, just typically it you know it's out there, but you you have to be very attracted to those types of games. You have to be willing to throw yourself into something for you know fifty hours, sixty hours, ninety hours to really kind of get that out of it. The the typical player doesn't seem to want that type of experience. So um, I, I agree. You know, I, it's funny that. That you say you've not played Ultima Online because I've never played any of the the original Ultima single player games. Um, when I when I actually started playing Ultima Online, I didn't even know that they existed or that it was connected to something that had come before. That was only something I learned about later. So a lot of the research for the book was just learning about those original games because that's what brought them a lot of players to it because they had familiarity with with those original games by Richard Garriott and they they had a love for the storylines and a love for the experience. Um, so that was definitely an, an interesting part was just to see that there was such a, a fan base out there for these games and, and how much those single player experiences also meant to them beyond what they experienced in the online version. Well, right. And, and if I'm being honest, I mean, it was mostly the time factor that I didn't play Ultima online, but also, I mean, I had had just such a positive experience adventuring in Britannia as the hero of the world and sure. everybody being nice to me and, and stuff. And <laughs> just, just the idea of uh, entering that world and having people you know, call me slurs and, you yeah. know, write fuck using fish on the ground and stuff like that. It was just, it was, you know, it was not appealing at some level. Totally. And, and you know, it's it's crazy, too, because as more and more games go online, um, you know, there a lot of them are online only nowadays. So you, you kind of have to have that experience if you want to even play the game. So, you know, I totally don't blame you for that. And, and at the, you know, if I'd had experiences with the single player game, I may have very well felt that exact same way, saying, hey, I can still have this rich, immersive role-playing experience without having to deal with all the, the idiots that want me dead. <laughs> well, actually, let me come back to that example of writing fuck on the ground with fish. That's out of your book. Sure. Because it's like if you create a game where people can pick up any object and put it down anywhere they want, which is amazing, you know, there is no real way to stop people from doing things like that, right? Or is there? Did they ever come up with any kind of um, solution for that? No. As, as I understand it, talking to people like Raph Koster and Starlong and, and Rick Hall and Rich Vogel, you know, a lot of the early experiences with the game is, is um, you know, crowd control, more or less. You know, they, they watched the emergent styles of gameplay that came out. 
Um, as uh, there's a really funny anecdote, uh, from, from Raph in the book where he says that, you know, within 10 minutes of, of starting the game, it just kind of became chaos. Like everybody would just immediately begin killing each other. Nobody was, was doing the quests. Nobody was having the adventures. It was just pure pandemonium. Um, and then Star Long tells an interesting anecdote about how the first players he watched that entered the game immediately started a, a prostitution ring. So it's like, you know, you can plan all you want and you can, you can try to give players this specific experience, but at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever the heck they want to do. Right. I, I think it sounds like a lot of the issue too was that the project was just under-resourced for what they were trying to do. And, um, there, there's a lot of really interesting stories in the book about bugs in the game. Like, um, I thought this was fascinating that apparently at some point you could pile up golds on the ground and create a ramp and then, you know, get up to the roof of the houses, which they didn't think you would ever be able to do. And then the roofs of the houses were not solid objects in the programming. So you could just sort of drop through the roof into the house and then steal everything and, and, and run out. Right. It was just a constant um, looking for things that were being exploited within the game and then having to address them. And, and as I understand it from the developers that I spoke with, it was hard to even plan long term for the game because there was just so much stuff popping up day to day. Um, so many fires that had to be put out, then and they really relied on the player base to kind of come forward and, and, and notify them of things that were were exploitable and things that were wrong with the code, so that they could fix those. So, um, you know, just imagine that you know you've you've worked for three years on this game, you launch it, and then you know everybody finds every loophole that you you either didn't know about or thought they wouldn't find, and uh, suddenly the whole world is on fire. So it's it's definitely an intense process and. Um, you know, ongoing. I mean, even to this day, I'm sure that they're still dealing with with similar issues for sure. Talk about this thing where the game keeps crashing and they can't figure out why. Yeah. So one of the uh, the people that I talked to was Chris Mayer, who was the game's original lead programmer, um, and he has gone on to work on on large scale games like Fallout 76, uh, which recently came out. Um, and he detailed a lot of really fun stories. I actually had a ball talking to Chris. Um, he told me that the book really captured his imagination. So I would get emails from him all the time with just these random anecdotes of, of things that just he remembered while he was at work or in the shower. And I was, I'd collect them all and then we'd talk about them later. And he was a great resource. Um, but that was one of, that was his responsibility as the programmer. He was constantly having to fix the code to, to avoid certain things from happening. So, um, he, he realized that at one point the, the game was crashing regularly. Uh, like, like clockwork every day at the same time, all the, the servers would go down and, and he couldn't figure out why. And, and so they kind of put on their, um, detective hats and, and had to figure out who was logged on, which players were actually active in the game when the crash was happening. Um, try to figure out, you know, where they were within the game, where was this crash going to taking place each time. And, and they managed to track it down to a person who had found a way to, to crash the servers, basically at command. So, um, to catch him red-handed and prove that it was him, they actually like infiltrated the game and and created a character that uh, and coerced him into killing them so that he would become a murderer. And when you became a murderer in the game, you couldn't like go into a city. Uh, you were able to be attacked anytime. It was a really big inconvenience if you weren't ready for it. Um, so they they tricked him into killing a, a a game master. He became a murderer and he said, it doesn't matter because watch this. And then they, they saw what he did and they were able to say, okay, that's our guy. We know who it is. We can get rid of him. We can remove him from the game. And also we know how to fix it. So there was a lot of, uh, subterfuge and 
and spy tactics that went into figuring it out. But that was the type of thing that kept it exciting for them at the same time. Right, because if you if the server crashed, the whole game state got rolled back half an hour or something. So if this one player didn't like what had happened, he could sort of reload a saved game almost, except it was affecting the entire exactly. world and all the players. Not, not ideal by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Uh, but I, I just think that's so interesting that they had to do a whole... St- you know, that the the management tools they had were you know, rudimentary enough that they had to do a whole sting operation. They had to, you know, follow this guy around to see what he was doing. They, there was no log, you know, or at least not sophisticated enough logs that they could just see what was going on. Yeah. And so a lot of the changes to the game and a lot of the updates just became based on, you know, what tools can we give ourselves to, to make this a little bit easier next time. Um, one of the other things Chris talked about is how he was basically on call all the time. So anytime the servers crashed, anytime there was a problem, you know, he was the first person that they would call to come in and, and try to fix it. So, you know, many, many holidays and many birthdays and many other social events, hmm. you know, were interrupted by phone calls because the players had done something silly. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you mentioned how they, they split up the world into Trammell and Fluka, the PVP and non-PVP worlds. Yeah. And so they created this fiction to explain this where, like, maybe I'll just let you, maybe I should just let you say it, but, but talk about, you know, the whole... Uh, the thing I want to talk about is the the U- the U.S. versus Europe versus Japan, how that played out on the different servers. Absolutely, one of the developers that I spoke with was uh, was Rick Hall, who who was probably honestly my favorite person to interview for the book. Um, his story, in a nutshell, and and you can read it in depth inside the book. But uh, he he wanted to work at Origin uh, because he he enjoyed their games. Um, but when he came on as a producer, the one game he didn't want to work on was Ultima Online, and, and that was because he. He thought that it was uh, kind of old technology. He wanted to do something that was a little bit newer. And of course, where did he get stuck? He got stuck on Ultima Online. So he has this very interesting story about how he came to love the game because of the experiences that he had uh, just working in the trenches, working with the other developers and, and solving these problems. So when um, when Origin prepared to split the world into Trammel and Feluca, uh, the gist was is that um, uh, an evil sorcerer was attacking a city and uh, players were called on to defend it. And and if they defended it, then, you know, everything would go back to normal. But if the, if the evil sorcerer won, something horrible was going to happen. So all around the world, simultaneously, the, the city of Trinzic went under attack. And uh, players, you know, were supposed to show up and, and fight the good fight and save the day. Um, but regardless of what, what happened... Um, their fiction was that um, they would lose. There was no way that anybody could win and that uh, Lord British would show up, who was Richard Garriott's character, and he would he would lead them all to safety in the in the lands of Trammel. So that was the fiction that they rolled out, and uh, they were sticking with it. They they didn't even write a version where, where people actually did win, which turned out to be a big mistake. So well, because the, it was supposed to be such overwhelming odds, correct. so many monsters attacking that there would be no way to survive. Yeah, it was, and, and I was actually there for that event, and it was probably, it was one of the single most fun events that they ran, and, and it was just, the city was just inundated with monsters, and there were hundreds of players running around. It was a full-scale assault, uh, you know, reminiscent of, like, the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings. It was just complete pandemonium. So they, they were all excited for this event, the developers. They decided that they were going to watch the event take place around the world because it would launch at uh, local server time, which meant that the United States event would be different from the, the UK version, different from the Japanese version, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and kind of how Rick tells it was that uh, he, he actually learned a lot from this experience that he didn't know before. So whereas the, um, you know, the Americans are all 
coming in, guns blazing, you know, everybody's fighting, everybody wants the personal glory. Unfortunately, nobody's working together at all. So the event, um, the, you know, the city was, was overrun relatively quickly and the event was over after just a couple hours. Whereas in Japan, when the exact same wave of monsters hit, um, they were very organized and they were disciplined and they had reserves. They had crafters there to fix weapons and provide new ones. They were very well organized and, and they actually, you know, held off the invasion because they knew what they were doing. And then he looked at uh, the UK version of the same event where they just could, those players kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, eh, and just let the city be overrun. So to see how everybody approached it very differently was, was absolutely fascinating and, and, and hilarious too. Um, because they, you know, they assumed naturally that everybody would fight and lose. And, and essentially there were three different outcomes across the world, which, which is awesome. Right. But so then Lord British had to show up in Japan, I guess, and say, let me lead you to safety. Right. Right. Even though they hadn't lost. And, <laughs> and that's when everybody got mad and they realized that they'd made a big mistake by not factoring that into the factoring a win into the, the lore of the game. So, uh, sure, they felt a little bit cheated, but I think they had spent so much time just just trying to get the event to work and not crash the servers just due to the sheer amount of monsters that were everywhere that, you know, some details slipped through the cracks. But um, <laughs> all's well that ends well. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned that Ultima Online is still running after 20 years, whatever. And mm. you say in the book that it's outlasted many, many other MMOs that had 10 times the budget. Yeah. So could you talk about that? Why do you think that it's uh, persisted so long? Uh, that's a, you know, it's a great question. And that's, I kind of end the book by, by asking everybody that I had spoken with and interviewed, you know, why do you think that it has lasted as long as it has? And a lot of it seems to come down to the community. Um, you know, there have been hundreds of MMO games throughout the years. And, you know, for instance, games like Shadowbane, which were very popular in, in player versus player combat oriented or games like Anarchy Online, which which I think is actually still running, but has next to no players with it. Um, these were all games that came out and threatened to, you know, steal from the player base. I, I remember, you know, as I played the game, the, the friends that I had would always say like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to actually go play this new game. I'm going to go play Star Wars Galaxies from now on. And they would disappear for maybe a month, but then they would always come back because Ultima Online was offering something that these other games weren't. So it was, it, it was interesting that, you know, many people would return because th there was an itch that wasn't being scratched. Um, meanwhile, with the other MMOs that were being created, they, they were being developed in more of a, a World of Warcraft style that was, um, you know, making, making it to where that you didn't have to worry about other players attacking you unless you specifically, you know, checked a box in a menu. Um, so that kind of became the norm and, and people moved away from having this kind of lawless environment. Um, again, all part of player retention and, uh, it's, it's just a special game in that, um, you know, it's, it's something where you actually experienced fear and you experienced anger and you experienced, uh, frustrations and, and you experienced joy when somebody would attack you, but you would kill them instead. So there were a lot of, uh, feelings and, and play styles that were kind of founded in Ultima Online, but then never duplicated anywhere else. So do you feel then that Ultima Online is the, still the ultimate MMO and, or has it been superseded? in in some aspects or overall by any other MMOs? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and that's that's personal preference, I would think. Uh, there's a reason that, you know, World of Warcraft has been so successful for the last, you know, 15 years and is, has become one of the, the highest-grossing MMOs of all time. Uh, it just depends on what your play style is as a player. You know, what what do you want to get out of the game and what game is, is kind of scratching that itch for you. Um, for me, you know, I, I don't see Ultima Online being beat just for the play style that I enjoy, which is, 
you know, not knowing what's around the next corner and not feeling like you're, you're being coddled or you're safe all the time. Um, and, and having to kind of, um, interact with people and, and really feel them out to see if, if somebody has good intentions or bad intentions. It's, to me, that's like the real world. You know, you never know the folks that you encounter, what they have in mind. And, and I kind of liked that in a virtual experience. But, um, you know, there, there are people that will tell you too that, you know, the nineties of Ultima Online were just the worst in gaming history because it was so, uh, outlandish and, and, and horrible and, and free for all. And, and that's not something that appeals to them. So, personal preference for sure but for me um it will always hold a special place do you have an opinion on ultima online versus eve online because i feel like that took some of those same um you know what's the word just like brutal yeah uh, it's it's i found that um a lot of the people that i i interviewed in the book they had also spent time with eve online so that seemed to kind of um definitely provide a similar experience although set in outer space rather than a uh, kind of medieval uh, European environment. Um, I've never played Eve Online personally, so I can't really speak to the experience, but, um, I imagine that they're, they're doing something similar if so many people are kind of having that crossover and enjoying the experience. So, uh, interesting though, you know, if you think if somebody's into a medieval role playing game, they may not be attracted to a sci-fi space game, but that's neat that they, they kind of can play both those worlds. Right. I think unforgiving is the word I was uh, reaching yeah, for there. I, I actually, I read a book about, uh, somebody released a book about EVE Online that's kind of similar um, in theory to to what I worked on for Ultima Online. Um, and, and I kind of read that in my research process, making sure that I wasn't doing anything that was too similar and also trying to kind of learn from um, from their experience as well. And it was it was fascinating. So all of my knowledge come about EVE Online simply comes from that book. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of... Uh, backstabbing and and spy tactics and and uh you know stabbing people in the back in that game as well so i i can see how it would be appealing for sure i don't know if you ever played shadowbane you quote this guy zatural he says um shadowbane was miles better than uo in giving me the feeling that this was an actual player-driven world its system of city building felt more freeform territory control and the world's map made the political system so much more impactful uo always felt like a world inhabited by but not really changed by humans do you have an opinion on that? Um, I don't. I didn't play Shadowbane either. You'll find that my, my <laughs> gaming experience, I, I haven't really pursued many MMOs in recent years just due to like a work schedule and a family schedule and that type of thing. Um, I, I know about Shadowbane because I, I thought about giving it a try when all of my friends were threatening to leave Ultima Online to go play it. Um, it depends again. It, it goes back to what, what type of design do you have? Um, you know, if you, if you want that in a game, then sure, you know, it's something that, that you feel like you're impacting is going to be much more appealing than a persistent world that never really changes or following a large event kind of goes back to the way it was. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that absolutely adored Shadow Bay and, and would probably continue to play it, you know, if it had not shut down. Um, I, I don't know the reasoning behind why it shut down. I can only assume it was, you know, a money thing, as these typically are. Uh, they probably couldn't maintain a, a subscriber base. And, and it came out in a time that was very competitive, that, and there were a lot of MMOs launching. Um, you know, again, but what you like in a game may not be what everybody else likes. And if there aren't people playing, then unfortunately there won't be a game to play. Right. Toward the end of the book, I think you mentioned you interviewed Star Long, who was one of the major, run, you know, game runners on, on Ultima Online. Sure. And he talks in, in pretty philosophical terms about how in modern society, 
we we have this lack of connection that we don't know our neighbors and we don't we're close to our families and he talks about games like Ultima Online as being a solution to that. I was just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think as we become even more disconnected, you know, just because of, of social media and, and the types of, you know, experiences that we're having online nowadays, I think that's why we see the boom in, in, a, in a game like Second Life, for instance, where it's not so much a game as so much more of like a, a visual chat room where you go and you, you can have items and you can represent yourself in any way and you can, you can meet people and talk to people from all over the world. Um, at the end of the day, we all want to be a part of a community. We want to be accepted and find people who are like us. Um, and, and Ultima Online was, was kind of the start of that. You know, it was a place that you, you didn't have to go out and, and fight in a dungeon. You didn't have to go out and, and rescue, you know, the innkeeper's daughter. You could spend all of your time just hanging out with your friends, whether that was in your home or, or in a bank in a, in one of the main cities, or, you know, you could sit around and, and knit clothes if you wanted to. So it really kind of was the first, uh, iteration of a game that let you do what you wanted to do. Um, and, and in, in doing so, you were able to find people that shared common interests. So, you know, I absolutely think that, that what Star says is right. And, and there's a reason that we, you know, we form guilds and we form clans and, and we form teams in these games is because we want to have these relationships that, um, and share these experiences with other people. I mean, one of the things I thought was really striking is the examples in the book of people who can't leave the house either because they have poor health or because they're caring for someone who has poor health for whom Ultima Online was was really like a second life. It was a, you know, a, a way to be free of all that for for the time that they were playing the game. Yeah, totally. And I can absolutely relate to that. I I grew up um in a very rural area in Ohio and you know, I I went to school and I had friends there, but my friends weren't into online gaming, so for me it was kind of a way to to meet people that had similar interests and and meet people who were, were both older and younger than myself. And, you know, I, I learned from them and, and I learned from their life experiences and, you know, made friends with these people. So to me, it, it helped me connect with um, a much wider crowd than my immediate circle could. And, you know, after, after playing the game, you know, that's part of what led me to, to move to a different state and move to a more um, urban environment and, and experience new things. I was also really struck. There was this uh, part where there's a, a family and the, Husband, I think, is serving in the military and is overseas, and they would sort of get together around the table every night in Ultima Online yeah. and uh, sort of have dinner together. Yeah, I mean, that's an awesome way to, to do it. You know, if you sure nowadays we have, you know, video chatting, which kind of serves that same purpose. But to be able to have that shared experience and kind of feel closer to somebody who isn't there physically, that's an amazing thing. You know, that's that's basically the the basis of all the technology that that Google and Apple are are delivering nowadays is that you know how can we bring people together through technology and um you know we've been doing that for years and years in in these games um but if you're not playing the game you don't know that that's occurring right so if you're doing a second book i guess like some things i would maybe be curious to hear more about is that and to as I said, I only played the single-player Ultima games, but I felt like the Eight Virtues were a huge, huge part of the uh, single-player Ultima games. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of people who sort of like almost adopted the Eight Virtues as their religion, and <laughs> I would probably include myself in that. You know, awesome. this idea of, of truth, love, and courage—you know—being your uh, sort of guide marks. But um, I felt like there wasn't a lot in your book about people talking about the impact that the Eight Virtues had had on their lives. Do you? 
agree with that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I will kind of keep the feelers out there to see if that was a was a thing. Um, you know, as somebody that played the game religiously for for five years straight, um, they they were in the game, but they weren't more than. And they weren't touted, as I've learned that they were in in the single player versions. So I think that you kind of had to go more out of your way to to bring that mentality to Ultima Online rather than learn it through the game. Um, within UO, the the virtues were essentially represented through a series of locations that you could go to. Um, you know, they had uh, different uh, places where you could go to to pray, or you could say certain words, and you would get healed, or you would get uh, you know something would happen on the screen. But they weren't kind of advice to say, hey, this is how you should consider playing the game and kind of, you know, living your life by these, by these rules or these suggestions. It, it wasn't, just wasn't there as much, unfortunately. And then the other thing I was kind of wondering about is that, um, and I actually, I actually did an episode on this, but this whole phenomenon of real money trade and people taking their game items and selling them for real money and making a million dollars and stuff like that. I think there were like maybe one or two th- examples in the book of that, but um, not a ton. Yeah. Did did you did you hear stories about that? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people told me that the whole way that they had even purchased houses within the game was through you know other markets buying them on eBay. Um, there was only so much space within the game that you could actually you know put down a house or whether that was something small or or a huge castle. And so whenever a new server opened, there was usually this initial rush of of people who were just trying to play the real estate market. They would get in, they would make a bunch of gold really fast plop down a house and then immediately take it to eBay and sell it there. Um, you know, people sold their guilds if they became popular enough. People sold their accounts. Um, so, you know, you could join the game and not have to start at square one. You could have seven characters who who were already, you know, at the top of their skill levels. Um, you know, people would trade or sell items as well. You know, if you found something that was highly desirable, whether that was a sword or whether that was a set of armor, um, you know, you always had those people that were looking to turn it around for a real world profit. So, you know, it's it's something that is feels commonplace now. You buy, you know, virtual and intangible items for real world money, but um I, I would not doubt that that was part of the the ultimate line was part of the spark that really brought that to people's forefront to say, hey, this is a thing that happens and maybe we should figure out how to get a piece of that action. <laughs> I guess I'll just mention there was a a documentary called Play Money that just came out. Um so when I did my episode on real money trade, it was still sort of in the pipeline. So if mm-hmm. anyone listened to that and is curious about that, I just want to let people know that episode is out or that a uh, documentary is out now. So you can go check it out. I think it turned out really well. Very cool. Yeah, I, I heard about that. I'll have to check it out. I didn't realize it had been released. Yeah. Um, so you said that, um, you know, you would get uh, stories from people whose stories were not as interesting as they thought they were. And <laughs> I don't want you to ha- like have to call anyone out or anything, but is there anything you could say about what? Um, you know, what, did, did the stories that you didn't think would work for the book, did they have any common elements or anything? Um, it's just a lack of details that made it appealing to me. You know, if I got a submission that said, you know, I, I threw Ultima Online, I, I met my significant other, we have, you know, X amount of children, and we still play today with our friends that live across the United States from us. That's more interesting than somebody that says like, oh, I killed 5,000 people or, oh, I made, I was the first person to make a million dollars and, uh, or, oh, I owned six houses and, and eight accounts. I looked for, you know, I just looked for things that spoke to me on an emotional level and made me interested. So I, people were, were basically, whether they knew it or not, they were essentially pitching me their stories. And so anything that was, was interesting kind of went into a notebook and then followed up with later. 
Yeah. I was also curious in the acknowledgments, you mentioned another games journalist, uh, David L. Craddock, and you said that you've never talked to him, even though you guys live <laughs> like in the same town or adjacent towns or something. Yeah. Is that still true that you haven't uh, gotten in touch with him? Uh, you know, actually, I, I have spoken with him since the writing of the book. I actually haven't met him face to face, but he, he recently uh, helped me kind of position the book with, with another project. Um, a, a way to kind of get it out to people through uh, a website called Story Bundle. So I, I feel like I know him now. He's a very nice guy. Uh, he's still an incredible journalist. I'm actually reading one of his books at the moment. Um, if you're interested in in in-depth gaming articles about, uh, he's covered numerous games. He wrote a book on uh, the platformer Shovel Knight. He's written books on the development of Quake. Uh, he writes a lot of long-form articles for ShackNews.com about every game you can imagine. Um, he's great. He does great interviews. He writes in a compelling and interesting style. Um, I probably completely ripped him off as I wrote my books. He was kind of my, my guiding light. Um, uh, yeah, I, I hope to meet him face to face next time I get over that way though. He, he's a great guy, very talented, and I'm always following his projects to see what he releases next. Yeah. I mean, he did a book on Diablo, I know. Yeah. Um, I read some, he wrote some stuff about King's Quest that I read. Yeah. Um, and he also, he had a book about the uh, Apple II games that looked really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I might, I might do that sometime. For sure. I mean, he writes just, he talks to a lot of developers. So a lot of his books are even just conversations with, um, people, you know, what did you learn by making your game? What, you know, how have you taken what you've learned and applied it to your future hits? Uh, you know, just, just, it's a really great insight into the industry. And, and as somebody who works in, at, in the industry, it's always great to kind of get into developers' heads and see how they approach both their successes and their failures. So, um, you know, I, part of it I read for enjoyment and part of it I read for g- genuine education. And so you're, um, you're looking for people still to give you stories, right? For the second book? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to, uh, bravingbritannia.com and I have a form set up there. So if they have something that they'd like to submit, it just asks for uh, some real simple questions. You know, when did you play? What server did you play? And then it has a big text box where you can write your story. Um, I just ask that people, you know, they, they write as much as they can. You know, I want them to actually tell me a story. I don't want to have to drag information out of them. So, you know, pitch me something good. Tell me why the game is special. Tell me why the game has changed your life. And and if I like it, then I will definitely get in touch and, and talk with them further. All right, great. So, yeah, we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any just any any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention or anything like that? Um, you know, I really appreciate everybody that, that has picked up the book and read it and, and shared it with their friends. Um, it became a very popular Christmas gift for people to give, you know, their fellow players or guildmates. Um, so it's just been great to see the, the enthusiasm that surrounded it. You know, I, I didn't have any idea that if this was something that people would actually read. Um, at the end of the day, I, I was writing it for myself. Um, mission accomplished and, and it <laughs> seems that other people have enjoyed it too. So, um, I, I can't wait to dive back into that, that world and get some more stories going. I have a handful already done. Um, I'm looking for more. And so I encourage anybody that, you know, has an experience with this game to by all means share with me. Yeah, great. And, and it's a terrific book. And I, as I said, I haven't even played Ultima Online, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. So awesome. definitely it's accessible for, uh, for anyone out there. That's very good. <laughs> All right. So we've been speaking with Wes Loker, and the book, again, it's called Braving Britannia. So, Wes, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Wes Loker for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jeffrey David Maricini who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, 
Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.